I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question. Hello, this is Vic Cohen broadcasting live from just stunning, gorgeous Skid Row Studios in downtown Los Angeles, California, as opposed to those other Los Angeleses out there. We're right on the corner of Olive and 7th, right? Right kitty corner to Skid Row. We really are. We don't just say it. We really are. And the name of the show, again, is It's a Fair Question because on this show, every question is a fair question. There is absolutely no question that is ever too personal or ever off limits. Warning guest, never off limits. Now, I'm really excited to have this guy sitting across from me on the show. I've been working on getting him here as a guest for over a year. That doesn't sound like a long time, but, you know, when you're calling someone every day, it it feels like, oh, okay, it hasn't been every day, but it is great to have him here. Um, I was thinking of words to describe you, guest. I put sweet. <laughs> you are. You're a sweet guy. He's smart and definitely talented. Um, I've had the privilege to working with our guests on TBS's hit show, Deal With It, where he's supervising producer, one of the guys running the joint, running that show, along with some very talented people. And um, our guest has also worked with so many talented uh, names, Larry David, Penn and Teller, of course, Howie Mandel, that was on Deal With It, Keenan Ivory Wayans, uh, Michael Richards, that was Kramer from Seinfeld, although he worked with him on another show we're going to talk about, Andy Kaufman and Larry Charles, this guy wrote on Seinfeld and directed a ton of Curb Your Enthusiasm shows and also episodes and also directed Borat and Bruno and just tons L- of stuff. Larry Charles did, not me. That's correct. Yeah. We'll get, yes, that is Larry Charles. <laughs> I don't want to confuse. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, and he's just worked with a ton of people. His credits just go on and on and on. Uh, and I'm talking about, that's that voice you heard, that mystery voice, Mr. Tom Kramer. That's me. Thank you. How are Thanks. you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here at Skid Row. <laughs> sure. And congratulations to you, Vic, for your documentary coming out. Oh, yeah, that's good. Thank you for mentioning that. I forgot about it. I'm following that on Facebook. Yeah, uh, it's called Committed. Committed, yes. And then, you know, we had a premiere out here in Los Angeles. I couldn't get tickets. It It was was so, yeah, it was sold out. But it it, it won Best Documentary, which is really cool. So we'll see what happens. Thank you, yeah. Um, Let's talk about you, okay? This is all about you. Um, You want to know how I feel about you? (laughs) <laughs> okay, cool. I think you're great, Vic. Thank you. Oh, well, that's yeah. sweet. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. I really do appreciate you being here. And um, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you on Deal With It. Uh, tell people a little bit about what you do on the show. How would you describe it? This is the hidden camera show that Mike Harney, uh, executive producer, Mike Harney, a few others. Incredible showrunner and great, great guy. One of the best guys I've ever met. And I'm very proud to call him a great friend. Yeah. Um, Deal With It is, for those of people who don't know, was originally uh, an Israeli TV show. And the basic concept is that people come into a restaurant, one of them is pulled aside, and they are surprised by the opportunity to be on a game show. And we will put an earpiece in their ear, send them back out, and we will give them challenges to basically humiliate themselves and the person they're having a meal with. Uh and the, that person has no idea that there are hidden cameras and this is a game show. So that's the basic concept. My 
title is supervising producer, which is that uh, I am heavily involved in the creative mainly, which is uh, one of the best things about the job that I'm coming I love. up with the premises of yeah. Of the it, it, there there are and... stories which are actually the challenges, but we try to make them into stories. Each episode, right? Each, with each game, game, yeah. Yes. Um, so I, that that's what I love about the job is it's it's all creative. I don't have to worry about all the. Logistics, and which is very hard, and and finding the restaurants and all that stuff. But well, so, so I I write. Okay, so you're very involved in the stories, creating stories. of that, and this is yeah. hidden camera comedy. Um, it's game, but it's all, it's a game show, but it's also it's a game show, but it's it's uh, hidden. Yeah, it's uh, the the most actually uh, the most interesting part of what I do is when we're actually doing it, which is where, you know, it's backstage. There's Theo Vaughn, there's the host, there's a co-host. And they are telling the contestant what to do through the earpiece. And they're talking the to contestants The contestant's wearing an earpiece, yes. a wireless earpiece. Yes. And they are also talking to the actors, one of which might be you on right. any on any giving. Which, yeah, many second. times has yeah. been. And the actor basically is there to provoke things and, and help uh, enhance the challenges. And keep it real. Always keeping it real. And which you are so great at. Um, pushing the envelope and keeping it real at the same time. And so it's it's very, it's actually, if you've never been on a hidden camera set, it's very exciting. And anyway, there's Howie Mandel there, there's Mike Carney, there's Roy Banks, there's all the EPs, writers, producers, everyone, actors, everyone on the set. There's, there could be a ton of people in crammed in this backstage room. And everyone is yelling ideas. We do have kind of a script and an outline. And so everything is funneled through me. I get that right. opportunity to funnel. Tom is the voice everything. of the ultimate uh, decision <laughs> as far as where we're going to go with these bits. Because once the cameras are rolling, we can't stop things. They're happening. Yeah. These, these hidden camera bits, unlike scripted television, you can't just say, let's take that again. So the train's left the station. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's, it's fun. It's not even, when you're doing, it's not like doing TV, you're, you're doing a prank. Well, I want to talk a little bit about when I listed those names of people you've worked with, and these are legend, legends. I mean, they're, you know, a lot of people would just be thrilled to work with one of these people on the list. What was going through your head when I was mentioning these names? Uh, when you're thinking about this, you know, this list of people you've worked with. I guess how lucky I have been in my career to uh, be able to work with such great and talented people. Um, the list, I mean, it's impressive. Well, when I, uh, and by the way, in Hidden Camera, I, I got the opportunity, I did, I was head writer on Candid Camera in the early 90s, and I part of my job was having dinner with Alan Funt every Thursday night. And so I I soaked up a lot of what I know from Hidden Camera. So Friday. Alan Font, for those of you who don't know, is really the creator of what we know as Hidden Camera. He's really yeah. the one person who who had a hit show called uh, hit uh, called uh, Candid Camera, which became kind of like the what would you say the model of what we now have. It started the, Hidden Camera yeah, on television back in the fifties. It originally was a radio show, Hidden Microphone, and he got the idea from uh, Stanford University. Uh, psychology experiments, I believe is what. It, what did you learn from him? Uh, you know, it's it's hidden camera is it's more psychological than anything else. It's really a study of people dealing with problems, 
and how everyone is different. And it really is about humanity. I mean, you know, not to get so deep, but it's not about uh, the, it's not about the actor so much. The actor's job is very hard because it goes against what an actor usually wants to do, which is to be the star. Or say the 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 hit the mark. The person yes. we're pranking go, is the it's star. It's about the mark. It's really everything has to go back to what can we get the mark to deal with and, and be challenged by, and what decisions do they make? And it and let's talk about um, since Alan Funt again for those of you who don't know he's really kind of like the god of hidden camera in many ways. He's and then his son Peter took over the Funt dynasty. Now, when you were uh, head writer, were you the head writer? I was head yeah, writer you said yeah. that. Okay, were you working for Peter no, or Alan? No, Peter. I never met Peter. Uh, this was a King World production. See, Dom DeLuise was the host. It was a. It was early nineties, ninety three. Yeah, it was the last time Alan Funt was involved. Was he on camera? He was not on camera. The matter of fact, they didn't have him. They didn't. He had kind of a tough reputation, kind of being tough to work with. What does that mean? What's, uh, that sounds like code. He, You're kind uh, of. I, I didn't have this experience. But with a lot was, of people crying on staff? And, uh, probably being yelled at, whatever. He, the, it, for, I've been told that uh, he wasn't allowed in the office. He, he never came to the office. <laughs> He's kind of like or, uh, Sterling, not allowed. Yes, to or on the set. Persona he never non showed up on the set. But. Uh, his involvement was going to dinner with the producers, the staff, and then they all fell away. And then it, it came to me. I'm just going to go to dinner with him every Thursday night. Rather he or you want to or not. I loved it. I thought he was great. How long uh, did you do this? The entire season. I Who picked up the tab? He did. And or, no, I don't think he paid. You paid? No, I didn't pay. No, it, someone it was, else. Someone else. <laughs> that would be horrible. You'd have. It was that. Yeah, it was that, the creator uh, of a Canon camera. It was at the Smokehouse Restaurant. Okay, legendary. Yes. And very uh, famous it was cheese great. bread. It was. It was an honor. And then, and then after the show ended, a friend of mine who was also a writer, uh, Mitch Glazer, we went up to visit him at his house up in Carmel. He had a he had a ranch with three miles of coastline in Carmel. Is this ca uh, candid camera money? Uh, yes. So he was a multimillionaire from this he, oh, uh, yes, property? Oh, yes, yes, But he had lost all of his money. I think his business manager took everything at one point. And he, started, oh. he started over. And you would uh, think they'd have a very, camera on him. He did very good with candid camera. Don't worry about <laughs> Alan Funt. He passed away shortly after that. But yes. Peter, though, inherited the dynasty. Yes. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Peter's taste was a little different than Alan's, wasn't it? I guess. I, d I didn't. Uh, I don't. I haven't watched any of Peter Funt's version of it. So I really, I if I put you on a lie detector, you've not watched one? I don't think so. Really? It, why? I don't know. It wasn't be, Alan Funt. I didn't. So you don't think father to son translates I automatically? I can't say. I don't know. i just never seen okay. it. Okay. So no bad Peter feelings towards I mean, Peter. I'm sure I've clipped past it or, but I don't know. Right. Well, uh, let's uh, real quickly, since, uh, you know, you did sit for a year having dinner every week with the God of, of Hidden Camera. Give me the do's and the don'ts if, from, that you learned from Alan about hidden camera. Do you uh, have any that just come to mind, even one or two do's and don'ts, the things that he said you'd never do and you'd be just furious if it were done, or things he insisted must be done at all times? Uh, well, you know, there, there's uh, don't tell the mark what to do. 
Okay. Uh, don't talk over the mark. You know the basic thing. Right. A, a lot of the my favorite stories of Alan Font were just his things that happened behind the scenes. And what would be one of those uh, great stories? Your favorite? One of my favorite stories. See, Candid Camera was like one of the biggest shows on TV back before my time, way before my time, fifties and sixties, and and uh, during its height, and they would travel around the country shooting it. He was on a plane to Miami. They were going to shoot in Miami, and the plane was hijacked and the captain got over the loudspeaker and said ladies and gentlemen with our plane where flights being diverted to cuba uh everything will be okay this is before hijacking meant you're going to crash into a building it was right. a little safer they actually landed somewhere they actually landed yeah and, and then went uh, on their way and so the whole everyone on the board is like oh my god we're being hijacked everyone's looking around they they recognize alan Funt. And everyone okay. starts to laugh and applaud. And he's like, no, 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 please. It's not, <laughs> it's not candy camera. And everyone's, ah, oh, and they just laugh and they're applauding. And the hijacker comes out of the cockpit because he happy, hears right? all this laughter. And as soon as he comes out of the cockpit with his gun, everyone turns to him and starts applauding because they think he's the actor. <laughs> he's, he's the Vic Cohen. You know? That's hilarious. So... Obviously, the plane landed because Alan yes. had a quite a career. Yeah, everything after that. turned out okay. Yeah, that's that's really funny. Uh, anything else about Alan? No. Okay. <laughs> now, when studying your credits and kind of seeing your history to some degree, as far as your career goes, I'm blown away by the fact like you, the first job, one of the first jobs you apparently had was on this ABC network show primetime called Fridays. Um, I mean. You had to have been like right out of college or something. I, I, I mean, actually was 20. I had dropped out of college. Okay. So how does someone get a job like that? Again, now there was no cable, right? Oh, no. Th yeah. There was three so, channels, ABC, right. okay. NBC, and CBS. Like who did you, do you have an uncle like a running a no, studio? No, it, it was just one of those freaky, lucky, once in a lifetime uh Fridays, things. just just a reminder, for, I mean, about TV history, Fridays was like kind of, it was like going to be like Saturday Night Live, but it's not live, and it was going to be on Fridays. No, it was live. It was live. It was live. It was Friday night. I did not realize it was live. Okay. Live from the Los Angeles oh, Basin. Was Johnny Rocket or, or some ro Rocket guy on that show, and he swore? Well, or, there was some Jack guy. Jack Burns. Uh, oh, there was some guy who swore live on a show and got in a lot of trouble. No, I don't remember. Okay, maybe that's but this show. is where Andy Kaufman in the Jim Carrey movie Man on the Moon they uh, recreated a famous episode from Fridays where Andy Kaufman had a big fight with the cast members, Michael Richards and everything on the set. Um, Fridays was the West Coast Saturday Night Live. This where Larry David and Michael Richards and Larry Charles and myself. It's where we all got our start. It was it very, yeah, it was, it was. But like how did you get that life. job at 20? I, I was going to film school in New Orleans and my freshman year, I was uh, hired to be a runner because they were doing a, Dick Clark was doing a Captain and Tennille special and they hired some local TV students at Loyola. <laughs> and from that, I dropped out of school the next semester to be a, a, what they call a production assistant and then a researcher on Dick Clark's Live Wednesday. And the producers of that show were putting together Fridays. Well, I went back to school. I made a short film called Nauseating Spasms. I dropped out of school again, which would have been my sophomore year. Came back to Hollywood and just gave Billy and John Moffat and Jack Burns, who were the producers of, of Fridays, gave him a copy of my film. I didn't know what to do. They, I gave him. I was bro I was actually going to head back to St. Louis because I was broke. 
And I assume you're from St. Louis? I'm from St. Louis. Okay, that'd be arbitrary. That'd be arbitrary. And anyway, yeah, they called me. Yeah, what'd they say? And said, we want to use your film on the pilot. We're putting together this late night comedy pilot. We want to use your film. And I will never forget that phone call. Yeah, I, I could not sit down. I was so excited. Your jaw just dropped? Yeah, for me. Uh, 20 back, years old. To be on, to have anything that I have written or directed, to be on a TV show was like, I might as well have had a hit record or been on a drafted for the St. Louis Cardinals, whatever. It was the most exciting thing. It was my dream. If you would have asked my what was your dream in high school? I would have said to sh make short films on Saturday Night Live. So this was like the second best thing. Mine would have been to have sex with Joe Rosengarten. Who's? That was a girl in oh. high school. Yeah. Okay. I didn't well, have did the, you? No. <laughs> did you have a second, like come in? Nothing. Second choice? Or? No, I mean, there's some other girls worked oh. out. But, so that was, but that was like, uh, that's such one of those stories that are just, I don't know, what do you learn? I guess the thing to learn from that, that what I heard right away is what's true now is you got to do it yourself to show people what you can do. Oh, now it's completely different. But it's still now. Yeah, you back, gotta... back then people weren't, people who wanted to make short films or comedy films, whatever, there were, there were, there were two, there was one place, Saturday Night Live, right? Right. Uh, but you had the, why'd you have the end, like what made you make this film when you were 20? Was it part of a project at school? No, well, we, we had to make a film in film class. Are you happy with the film? Are you proud of it? It aired, yeah. It was just a parody of documentary. Is it online if people want to see it? I think it might be. If you, yeah. And give this the name again? Nauseating Spasms. Okay, so you get if this, you, yeah. Yeah, you can YouTube. There's a few Tom Kramer films, but you have to but I think you're YouTube. calling yourself Thomas Tom back Cr then. No, well. The one that I, there's a film you put up from with Larry David doing the voiceover. Oh, that was a where the, you were. The, a, they said if they did a voiceover, say a film from Thomas Kramer. Yeah, Thomas Kramer, a Thomas Kramer-aki production. That was my right. uh, kung fu movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I used the Japanese version okay. of my name. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so you get this. Um, th they're going to say we're going to put this one film on. And yeah. did you? What kind of money did you make on that? I was making. Well, that they put it on the the pilot, but the the pilot never aired. The show got picked up as a series, mm -hmm. and they hired me to be the filmmaker, to write, direct a film every week, and I was making 300 bucks a week. And that was good money? No, it was horrible money. Even, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no. Were you in the guild? Even Were you in the writer's then, guild? No, so this, this is the thing, and that's what I was being paid for the first uh, month or so, whatever, a few episodes, and then they were going to hire more writers. Jack Burns stepped up. He was the... Jack Burns was of Burns and Schreiber. He was a comedy team. He used to, anyway, he was the supervising producer of Fridays, and he became a big supporter of me. And he said, before you hire writers, you got to put Tom in the guild. So they put me in the writer's guild, then they put me... Then they had me direct everything on the show that wasn't live. So every... every anything on location or pre-tape, they had me direct, and so they put me in the director's guild. So, yeah, before, You're 21. I, before I was old enough to drink, I was, yeah, writing, directing network television with, and then when they had guest stars, I would purposely, like my first, the first guest star was George Carlin, so I wrote and directed a film starring George Carlin. Well, I mean, were you a savant, or were you just naturally no, no, no. talented? Like, I was the, lucky. Like, I, was I mean, not to diminish you, I, I but I mean. I was extremely lucky to be in that position, and I did work, I mean, I, I, I was so grateful I mean, I was aware of what a unique situation this was, and this was my dream come true that I would I would have to get away and cry often, get away after the show because you were so grateful. I was so, you just couldn't believe it. I couldn't. I didn't think I was. I deserved it, and I was just lucky. And 
Well, they're obviously you're talented. It, they don't keep you around. it messed me up. It was really like the best thing ever that happened to me and maybe the worst thing that ever Well, I want to hear about that in a moment. But what I want to know is, first, uh, I want to hear about how it messed you up. But I also want to hear, you got Larry David, again, creator of Seinfeld, multi-zillionaire. And then he creates Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. And then you got Larry Charles, who yeah. was, now they're both on the writing staff. Yes. What were they like on staff? Were they fun people to hang out with? Yeah. Were they friendly? They were old. See, everyone was a lot older than me. So, and and back then, you know, when you're 20, there, even if it's just a few years or 10 years, there, it's like a lot older. You know, so I looked up to everybody as like TV veterans, even if it was just their second show. Right. Or, Did you ever right? think that Larry David had something special that would take you know, him? Like, uh, Larry David's... During the pilot, him and I used to drive around. I used to pick him up every day, and we were both looking for apartments. And I used mm -hmm. to pick him up my Honda, and we'd both go around looking for cheap apartments. And he was always nice and funny. And then after the show, my this is just my memory of Larry David. He, I, and he was in a lot of my films, and he was always great and funny. We used to sing, Larry, me, and this girl, Sissy Cargill, Hill, who worked on the show. We used to, after each show, we'd go away just the three of us together, and we'd sing Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And that was our thing. L Larry, Larry was great, and I wouldn't have guessed that he would be this breakout star. No. Right, because he, was he quiet? He... Was he as much a curmudgeon no, he was just, as... Yeah, he was a curmudgeon. He was great. I mean, he just was like... Uh, a lot of his ideas he pitched ended up being things on Fridays, or things he would talk about in the office, like a puffy shirt... Or having a black friend put an ad for a black friend or whatever. These little storylines that were just his own personal things ended up on Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Did um so you knew he was a creative guy, but He was one of the cast members who is also a writer. There was just a, a couple of those. And that was a big show, probably one of his first it was big yes. television. Yes. Deals. Most of the people there it was their first. What about Larry show. Charles? I mean, did you see them like having a great connection? Yes. They were the, like two They yeah, they they hit it off. They wrote yeah. yeah. Were they part writing partners on uh, that show? not so much. I don't think so back then. Larry Charles is this crazy long beard. But, did he have it then? Uh no, but he was uh he got his start. I don't know if this was his start, I think writing like porno uh books. <laughs> um, and he was an urban, he was like a really hardcore for me. Like I was like a suburban, uh, Catholic, like this squeaky clean kid from the Midwest. And to me, he was like, Ooh, he, he, he was like a streetwise edgy kind of world weary, you know, like he, he had lived in my opinion. Were there, yeah. so yeah. Did he, uh, he scare you a little? No, no. Uh, was there a competitiveness on no, the staff? Or was I, I it very supportive? Well, I think the writers all had a lot of competitiveness. And if you ask the cast members, they had competitiveness. And I was just in this lucky bubble of I had Tom, you know, make a film every week. And I would come up with a film, write it, produce it, direct it, edit it. And it would air mm -hmm. every week. And then anything else needed to be... Shot, I would direct that, put that together. I worked, you know, everyone worked very, very long hours, but I didn't have that. 
competitiveness because I was the only filmmaker on the show. So it was just you, uh, there was your own little department. And you did this for two years, right? With each of 50 yeah, some 58 episodes? episodes. I think we did 57 and then a primetime. IMDb says 54. 54, they're <laughs> wrong. <laughs> well, here's also what I thought was really interesting when uh, researching you that there are only uh, two other people with 54 writing credits. And the only other two oh, are oh, Larry David what, and Larry oh, Charles. Oh, I know what that is. Um, it says 54 episodes for me. That's because I was only in the Writers Guild for 54. But that's the same for Larry David and Larry Charles. Yes, you three are the only ones. Oh. And another little piece of trivia for you about that show is that, um, that oh, you and there are only like two other people that had a director credit. Maybe three others. I mean, it was very... Well, there, well, know, there is John the creators. Moffitt, yeah, Paul Miller, uh, Bob uh, Bowker, I think. They, they were the directors who directed the live And then there was you. Show, and then there was me. I mean, that's pretty... That is amazing. Uh, so, you were saying that it was the best experience and the best thing that ever happened to you. In some ways, it wasn't. So, let's talk about the wasn't. What was... What, well, what made it not? Well, on... For one reason, it gave me a totally false idea of how Hollywood worked in terms of the total creative freedom and protection that I, an opportunity that I had. Um, so that's very, very rare in, in film or TV, where basically your vision that you create and come up with, conceive, is airs that week with pretty much no notes. Or just applause, hmm. you know. So, and I wish looking back that I had, it was more tough, you know. Uh, okay, so. They, they would air everything as a Tom Kramer film. So, and they would allow, they would make fun of like how young I was when they would introduce it and stuff. And so it allowed for the imperfections and I got better as it went on, but it totally, I had to adjust later on in the business. Uh, so that's one way. The idea of like getting notes and having oh, a rewrite just, and you know, well, you know how not it is. being autonomous. Yeah. You throw out ideas after idea after idea that are turned down. And then when it's done, it's changed. It's not the way you want it. And then the you can't be married to anything. Has their stupid ideas. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's no one understands. And I think part of being a really great writer is not being too married to things. Well, in Hollywood. Yeah. I yes. mean, if you want to survive. In yeah. Hollywood, I mean, yeah. it's not yeah. worth it to start fighting over everything. You know, part of the job is to not fight over everything if you want to keep a job. Yes, but, you know, when you're a film student, you have this idea that, you know, you want to be a film. I mean, how many even, you know, successful film directors, you know, at the very very top maybe can overrule what the studio wants or what. Right. Well, numbers. you were, so you, um, that was one thing. And what that else? That was one thing, yeah. Well, the, wor the worst thing um, is that how I became uh, addicted to drugs um, it was a, it was before the show started before John Belushi died. And I think up until that point, drugs were very okay. You they saw were, them being used. They uh, were used out in the on open sh on shows. And yes. Oh man. Every, everyone you could, you would be interviewed by a reporter for Rolling Stone and be doing Coke with the reporter. You, you've seen this. I did it. <laughs> um, That's a great answer. Now, at the beginning, wait a minute. You know, like hold on, I, hold on. So, you were interviewed by a Rolling Stone? Was it or, Rolling Stone or Village Voice? I don't know. Whatever. And you Someone. guys were both doing coke. Oh yeah. Did they? Who brought the coke? Was it you? 
or that person? Might have been. It's a fair question. Might have been. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so that was part but of the, anyway, it was the a lifestyle. Drug, it was of, a drug culture, and believe me, it wasn't my. I mean, I like I said, I was I started when I was twenty. I drank. My family drank a lot coming from. You grew St. up in Louis. Okay, yeah. But I, but I never did drugs, and it was so scary to me. The th I mean, cocaine we're talking about, pot. I got into a little, but I, I, I didn't like being stoned, so I wasn't into that. But cocaine was so prevalent. It was, it was not, and I want to be clear that not everyone did drugs on the show, but a lot of people did. The people who I ended up sharing an office with did, writers, people I looked up to, guest stars. It, it was not everywhere, but it was around a lot, and I turned it down so many times until one time after a, a show rap party I was drinking too much and and I was offered again by people above me my my Your, people who were senior to me on the show who I looked up to and admired and I and I was I remember turning it down and turned it down and I got and I talked it I did it well you know a lot of people try it and they do it for a while in their life and then they stop mm -hmm. or they don't do it as much and they move on I happen to be uh, an addict. I mean, this, it's part of me that I, uh, could not stop. You had the ism. I had the, the ism. I had psychological, I, I, I have depression issues more, more so back then, but I still deal with issues in my life where it fixed me. It made me feel okay. I never felt, I never felt part of the group. I never felt worthy I never felt as smart or as good as the people I'm hanging out with, and in, especially in that situation. And uh, I couldn't, I, I tried stopping. I tried many ways. Was that season I, you know, one? You took that. the first? Starting in season one, yeah. And tried to control it, tried to control it. And by the time the season ended, I think we went on to did not necessarily the news, and I was already having problems and I, ha I, ha I got put, I had a business manager put me on an allowance. Because you were spinning out of control? Yeah. And Well, uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. After you're done with um, the show, it went two seasons, the Friday show, you find out it's been canceled. Um, how much money did you have in the bank? Probably very little. I, it, I was spending pretty much. Is that because you were snorting it away? Yeah. What was your average weekly I, spending? I, 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 would you say? I mean, a couple thousand uh, or more depends. Yeah. So it's like a very. This is you're doing it morning, lunch. I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, like three times a you day. You know, it, if I wasn't working, I would do more. Um, but I would do it. Yeah. It was pathetic. Let me just say it was. Well, it was. You were sick. It was. I mean, I don't. It was a sad, pathetic, and people who would look at me who knew, and then later on, especially, who would look at. Tom, you were given this golden opportunity. How could you fuck it up like this? Is that how you look at it? No, I knew the whole time that I'm fucking it up and I can't stop. And it, and for me, and for anyone who's not an addict or an alcoholic, to understand that, I don't think you could understand it. It's like looking at a 900... 50-pound man who's still eating. You say, why are you still eating? You're going to be 1,000 pounds. And you're going to still eat. It's, it's, unless you've been there, you can't explain. But yes, that's the thing. I'm hating myself the entire time. And uh, 
after the show ended and I got fired off of not necessarily the news because I could not get clean after the first season. Did what was, let me, a couple quick questions. Yeah. When you did the cocaine for the first time, can you tell me where you were and what that scene was? It was at a rat party at someone's, someone's like at a restaurant. Or so, no, someone's apartment in Hollywood. Okay. And I mean, I know this could sound crazy, but I'm really curious because I've never done cocaine. No, and, good for you. Don't. Well, just because I'm scared of Don't. It's death. horrible. I'm scared of death. Was this like the kind of thing where you had like a mirror? No, yeah, and, I don't know. I think it was rolled a, up the... I really don't want to okay. uh, visualize it or, it still is or a, romanticize it. I'm not it trying to. I'm or just Or anything. Gonna, it was okay. a horrible situation. It was probably seemed... Like I said, I was drinking I, a lot. I'm not trying to relapse him, by the way. Yeah. Everyone listen. No, it was <laughs> it was just pathetic. It doesn't matter. Okay. Um... We'll go past that. So, yeah. but then you go to not necessarily the news, the same producers, yeah. correct? Yeah. And they're like, hey, Tom, we love you. Come on Moffitly, over. yeah. And um, did they, did, was it one of them who had to sit down with you? And After the first season, yes, they both did. They wanted me to get help. And uh, I, ha I, I was, I just was devastated, but I, I don't know. I had the, my advisor said, no, don't get help. Don't listen to them. Who's your advisor? Uh, your business manager? No. Your Coke dealer? <laughs> <laughs> um, they were ill. Uh, it wasn't, they weren't very friends? good. Friends? Good. Yes, they were friends. Okay. And um, I Dude. was, I was, anyway, I Dude. just hit bottom again. I moved back to St. Louis and to get away from Coke, at least to get away from Coke. Because they don't have cocaine and in St. Louis. No, well, I didn't have the contacts. I didn't okay. have friends. I, 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 I had my dad. My mom had died during the first season of Fridays. Do you think that's what fueled the Coke? There, there was a lot of things that fueled it. Yeah. Uh, and it's my responsibility. Look, I take full blame. And e even though it's a disease and there's a lot of things in my youth uh, that... Uh, that uh, of shame and things I deal with in my life um, that drugs and alcohol f seem to fix, at least temporarily. Were you drinking in high school? A little, yeah. So really drinking wasn't your problem? Well, um, I mean, when I, when I moved back to St. Louis, that's, and I couldn't get Coke without dealing with it, without getting treatment or anything, I was just, I'm going to stop on my own. That's when I started drinking around the clock as a, that, at your parents' house? At my dad's house, in the basement, round the clock, passing out, coming to for like months, passing out, coming You're to. You're about 25, out, maybe? To. Oh, I was like, yeah, 24, 25. I thought my life was over. I was thought I was like an old man. I knew I had destroyed my career and my life, and I could not. And, and I knew what I had done to this golden opportunity, what I had done to myself without being able to stop. And so that's when I decided to, to, to put a rope around my neck and, and tie one end to a rafter in the ceiling of the basement, get on a chair and jump. That's how bad uh, it But got. you were going to kill yourself. I, you had a I plan? hung myself, yeah. You hung yourself? I did, yeah. I wasn't very good at measuring. You actually were a failed suicide attempt. I yes. mean, you had a failed Oh, my I God, again. I had no idea. Yeah, failed again. <laughs> no, but... I jumped and uh, the, I had, I wasn't very good at measuring a noose oh. and there's some skill to it, which I did not have. Thank God you didn't. And I landed feet on the floor and then I just decided to go limp and maybe suffocate or strangle myself slowly and that didn't work. Were you drunk when you jumped? Yeah. Well, yes, mm. I'd been drinking. Um, Jeez. 
The next day, I told him. Sorry, go on, yeah. My dad knew there was a problem. I ended up, anyway, over the next, I, I went into a locked psych ward. For suicide. They said, you're an alcoholic. Who, who put you there? I did. So you had enough of... Uh... I didn't know it till they locked the door, what I had put myself into. Really? But that was the first time that they, anyone even said that you have a, a problem. The irony is though they never dealt with my depression or reason, you know, the, the underlying reasons. They just said, you're an alcoholic. And, I, and that was my very beginning of going to meetings and treatment. But I had been in several rehabs. Um, by the way, now, um, looking back now, I, I'm coming up on 12 years sober, clean and sober, 12 years in a row. Most of my life I've been clean and sober, but, but I never, I kept, when I did relapse, I would always hit, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to re, I would relapse for a weekend. I would hit bottom. I mean, I, I lost two homes, three cars. I've had accidents uh, where I broke, I was two accidents where I broke both my legs in 14 places were in lungs and heart where one time it did, I didn't even find me for eight hours. This is DUI stuff? Yeah. Well, I never asked the thing. I, ironically, I never got a DUI. Never you got have a, a little bit of a limp. Is that from? Yes. Well, I, I've spent two years of my life learning how to walk. It, uh, from accidents. You know, and it was like a, a duplicate. It was like a, 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 a cop. I mean, the second time, first time was in a van. Second time was in a motorcycle. It was like a repeat of this. Like I didn't learn. God, I just want to give you a hug because, you know, I just see so much pain when I hear that. Oh, it was bad. You put yeah. one, you know, put yourself It was bad, but, that, that. but it's still hard to like, that's not enough. That's you know, the that, thing, That's Dick. depression. That's like not you know that you're 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 driving headfirst into a wall, and you know it, but you're going to hit the wall because you don't you don't see that there's a way around the wall, or there's a break. What do you mean by that? Are you talking literally? Well, no, not literally. This is I metaphorically. Hit a tree. Metaphorically, you know, like I know I'm destroying myself, right. and I think that's still the best way out of the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is after rehab. This is after doing twelve well, step groups, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. The um. What is been, What would you say was your most uh, deep bottom? Again, for those of you who don't know, a bottom is used in 12-step or recovery often is like um, a bottom is usually what, what pushes people into getting help and to getting sober. And there are lots of talk about this, a bottom. Some say you hit the bottom when you stop digging. That's a popular yeah, saying. Yeah, so, so if that's it, then it would be my last time where I just laid on the floor of the... Uh, USC emergency room. But, you know, you would say hanging yourself would be a pretty low bottom. I mean, I've been homeless in L.A. Um, you know, in between, though, being very successful, cleaning up, you know, working on shows, being building a life. Um, so... What, are the, what is the inner demon, do you think? I mean, is, is yeah. it self-loathing? Is it... It's self-loathing um, and, and the disease itself. Because people, I don't think, realize sometimes that, you know, it, it is a disease. Like, it's like it's like what you said. There doesn't have to necessarily be a psych... I don't think there needs to be a psychological... Usually there is. Usually, usually actually, well, I disagree with that, what I just said. I basically, my understanding, and you'll tell yeah. me, because you're more of an expert personally than I am in this, but 
I'll still I'll still give my thought. I think that they, there's a saying that's never about what it's about. So, like you know, it's never about the drinking. It's about so, yeah. what's well, driving pretty, one to the that's drinking. That's pretty much true. But the, but alcoholics and addicts, I I work with recovering alcoholics and addicts a great deal now, and that's that's very helpful. But everyone has. They say the disease is the same, but every but alcoholics and addicts are different. The way they some people get sober right away. Maybe they're not even alcoholics or addicts. I don't know. They have a they have a some bottom and they clean up and that's it. Some people takes a long time. Some people has your has your addiction gone into other areas? Because often it can be like a whack a mole game where you hit one and another pops yeah. up. Uh oh, sure. I mean, yeah. heroin. No, no. Thank God. Well, other you know, at the time when you're if you can't get whatever drug you want, you will do whatever there is to change to numb yourself, whatever. But I wasn't. Never get, get into heroin. What's keeping uh, What's keeping you sober today oh, and for the last twelve years? It's a, a lot of a lot of things. I think my my at the point I uh, I ended up deciding. Look, the last time I can't go through this again. I can't. The pain was so bad, and I got checked into a treatment center where I was homeless. And they how said, how long were you homeless? Well, look, first of all, I don't want to say that in a dramatic way, like I'm li- sleeping in the gutter. I was homeless because I had no home. I was living out of my van, sleeping on couches. I lived in a storeroom on a mattress I found in a, in a dumpster. Someone just let me live there. They said, hey, this is Tom. He used to do Fridays. Can he live here? Uh, yeah, as long as he you know, locks the door at night. How whatever. long was that? That was for about... That was... For uh, about six months that time. Uh, anyway, on and off, it was... It was. So you would go like a couple years and then you'd hit a bottom again and then go yeah. another six oh, yeah. months or even yeah. a year oh, yeah. of act, uh, acting yeah. out or whatever yeah. and using. And yeah. then, so 12 years ago, you're like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I ended up in the emergency room at USC and uh, friends put... I got into Tarzan. A, a producer was notified of my situation paid for my treatment at tarzana treatment center for a month said you can work it off whatever fine i was man i was so grateful but that's only a month see i've been in a month treatment center insurance companies pay for a one month 28 day program because that's just what they'll pay treatment takes could take the rest of your life could take you know i needed a lot more than 28 days let me put it that way Mm mm-hmm and someone came, where are you going to go from here? And I said, I don't know. I don't have, I can't, I don't have a plan or a home. And uh, they hooked me up. They said, look, we made arrangements. If you want, you can move into Chabad Treatment Center. Chabad is a Hasidic Jewish organization. And, you, you know, I got to commit for six months. And I said, absolutely, whatever. Six months. Seems like a long time, but I, I would do whatever they said. And I didn't know anything about his uh, Hasidic Jews or anything. And I didn't know what to expect. But I said, they do the Chabad Telethon, don't they? They do the Chabad Telethon. That's one of your credits, by the way. So, yes. I was, <laughs> they, they pulled me out as kind of the poster boy once in a while. And, <laughs> um, so uh, I lived there for, for six months. And uh, then I lived in sober living for a year. Um, I... And I just took it so serious. I turned down work, whatever. I just wanted to do whatever they they said. I did a lot of therapy, personal therapy, group therapy. 
And uh, while I was in sober living, I started dating again, and that's when I met my wife. And I knew Alicia, who I just saw her smile, and I was I started going out with her, and I just knew there was, it was right. And I t- proposed to her while I was in sober living, and she accepted, which when I look back at it today makes me... Uh, now she, was she drinking? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Like, she, she loved you, obviously. You know, she's a w- wonderful woman, and I, um, she holds me accountable. And uh, I'm the luckiest person to have uh, found her in my life. And, uh, you know, she, you're not a gold digger when you marry someone who's in sober living. I moved into her apartment, and uh, I'm very lucky. So I rebuilt my life, and... How long and ago was that? Like 10 years? That was, ago? Well, yeah, we're coming up on 10 years. Wow. Congratulations. September. Awesome. And she, well, um, and I'm still discovering things about my past and why I have such self loathing and things, you know. What, what would be some of the reasons um, that perhaps others could relate to? Well, as can, well? I, can I plug another podcast? Please do. Because uh, this was a fairly recent thing. Um, uh, it's called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Happy Hour. Yeah. Oh, you know. I know him very well. He's a great guy. Okay, so he, yeah. Paul Gilmartin. Yeah. So he had me on, and I thought it was just going to be a talk about the addiction thing, whatever. And, you know, he's gone through a lot himself. Yes, And I know. so, but he really asked these questions from his, the perspective of someone who knows. And he, and then I, afterwards, as he was packing up, I said, can I just ask you a question? Because he, he's a, uh, has recovered from our deals with, you know, the sexual, uh, abuse and stuff. And I asked him, he said, oh my God, he put the, he said, yeah. And, and so he had me then talk about it. And it was first time. Talk about what? Well, I was, when I was in 12 years old, I was used as a sexual way by a boss on a job I had selling newspaper subscriptions in a group situation where I was molested and by a prostitute for his satisfaction and female doesn't yes, matter. It was a but female prostitute. And I always, but it was for his, he used me and, and I, I, I he felt sat and watched. so much shame in a group setting. Yes. Uh. And I had no idea what was going on and it was such shame. And I always felt bad about even just participating in this thing that I had no idea what sex was or anything. And I think I've, I I've never forgotten that and always felt like shit my whole life. You still do? Or are you getting over it? I mean, well, you, you got to give yourself a break getting, at you're some point. Over it. But um, I, hadn't, I didn't know, or maybe I was just in denial, that that, that had, had so much effect on my psychology and my, my self-loathing, you know. So talking about it is, well, has to be liberating. Well, it's... It, it, it's a beginning, yeah. Well, there's a great saying about, you know, we're as sick as our secrets. And I think it's really yes. true. Well, it is that, It is good to, they say that in the program, yeah, you're as sick as your secrets. You don't have to tell everybody your secrets, you know. It's I probably important to pick the right that. person. I probably shouldn't have said, talked about it here, but, you know, it's a fair question. It is a fair question. And um, all you've done is perhaps help some other people who can look back and maybe look at some things that happened in their life. And also, if there's something did happen, to pay attention to it more and to be honest about there, it. Yeah, and, and I don't blame that 
it's a it's a multiple of things in my life that I was that your is that I, the only time you were molested or yeah. um, not that that's not enough. But yes, I mean yes, and I shut down for a long time after that. Um, but that you were saying and the fact that in my family, look, my family has alcoholism in its background, and I have the I have the gene, and I was in a situation I was immature to handle, and uh, a lot. And on and on. And I, you know, when, peop when people destroy their lives like that, like what I did to me, I am responsible. It may not be my fault, but I'm responsible. Are you saying, I mean, it almost sounds like, I could be totally wrong here, that that's part of your recovery is to take responsibility. Well, is no one true? else is responsible if you can't, you know. Right, well, that, it is the truth. And, and it may not, it takes what it takes. Um, and everyone has their own journey and all that stuff and, and it's still hard to this day to to forgive myself for what I did to my life and my career. And it, but then, on the other hand, I feel so lucky to be where I'm at today. Alive. So <laughs> lucky and fort fortunate. What is that about? What is it that you're fortunate? You're married? Is that you know? You're just sober, to, I'm not alive? homeless. I'm married to a woman I love. I got a roof over my head. I'm self-supporting today and uh i'm relatively healthy i limp <laughs> but it could be so much worse i get to work with some great people you included well, you know making thanks. television it's fun you know i um well i mean it's uh it really means a lot for you to open up and talk about this stuff is it make it is it hard to talk about yeah I mean, it gets hard it gets hard what are the, what's the sadness about? Is it just thinking? I mean, I was talking to my wife before I came over today, you know, and I was telling her how sometimes I get so sad about what happened, what, what I did to myself that I couldn't help. I mean, I knew I was doing it, but I couldn't stop. This is a long, long time ago. And she said, well, what do you, where do you think you would have been if that never happened? And I thought about it, but I realized, well, I might not have been here with you. So maybe, maybe this was the best thing, you know? Well, it is true. Everything leads. They say that there's an idea that everything's happening exactly as it's supposed to. I don't know. Because it is. Uh. You know, well, it and is. And it's a helpful way to, for me to look at life. Yeah. And then, and, you know, I appreciate, I don't want to take away the sadness because it's also important to feel that too. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, it is. It, it is. And sometimes it feels the same. You know, the great sadness and the great joy sometimes. Uh, it means you're alive, you know. If you didn't feel pain... You wouldn't be alive. You know, it was one of the things I remember, God, from Nanook of the North, one of the first documentaries when the, the guy's, guy fell into the water and his hands were freezing and Nanook grabbed his hands and stuffed him into the belly of this animal that had just died. And the heat brought the blood circulating back in his hands and the guy screamed. And Nanook said, it hurts, doesn't it? He said, yeah, it says, good, it means you're alive. You know? 
Was it some of the, the feelings that you were trying to escape perhaps or didn't have access to when you were using? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was about being numb. You know, I never, I wasn't a partier. I didn't go out and, I mean, I did if I had to times, but mainly I was alone, locked away. It was not, it was, it was pathetic. It was sad and ugly. It wasn't Hollywood. Hey, you know, have a line. It wasn't like that. There was a lot. And of- so, and I would highly recommend to any, any person, if they're given the opportunity to try a drug, to say no. I would highly recommend that because you don't know if that switch is going to be turned on in you where you cannot stop. What about these shows that glamorize drug use, like Breaking Bad and, you know, and Garsh a yeah. lot? Uh, Nurse Betty. I don't know if it's, I said I haven't really seen much in Nurse Betty, but the it seems like there's a glamorizing, even though the stories yeah. aren't necessarily They're, positive. I would I would uh, uh, guess that they are not done by addicts who uh, seriously take their sobriety seriously. Um, I I just can't imagine. You know, I mean, I, I've done drug humor and stuff, but not. Like, I can't, it's hard for me to watch scenes in a movie where people are Wolf of Wall Street. Drugs. I don't know. Did you? I, hope- I couldn't watch it. Yeah. After a while, I couldn't watch it. It was a lot. Of, you know, people drink. You have to be around drinking. Yeah. People drink in society all the time. And I, it doesn't make me drink, but I know if I have to go to a party, I know what, who's drinking, what they're drinking, how much they're drinking. And I can tell when they're buzzed, et cetera. But I don't have the, it won't be an obsession where I'm going to go drink. But, you know, and I don't, on the other hand, drugs, I don't think about unless it's brought up for some, I mean, you don't, thank goodness. You don't have an uh, uh, urge at any time to? No. However, if you brought out some, you know, crack cocaine or something, you started smoking it right now, it would be really hard for me. I won't. So don't. Yeah. <laughs> I promise. And thank that won't you. Know, look, I'm. Some, I, I, I've gotten sober uh, with people, you know, many, many years ago. Who I'm, um, and, and fortunately, a lot of my friends in the business who uh, used to do drugs, whatever, they're clean now too. So I'm still friends with. Well, them. we're we're almost. It's crazy. We're almost out of time. We, you know, the hours just. You don't want to talk by. about Turkey. When I lived well, in Turkey or the monastery, when I lived the, in the monastery. You know, we we should do another show because there's just no way we're going to get it in. We only have a couple minutes actually, and. I did want to know you something else about. Uh, I want to. I want to make a certain thing clear to everyone that you mentioned it. You've had some incredible success, amazingly, over all these bottoms, and you know, like it's not as if at twenty five you disappeared. Eventually, you did come back to Los Angeles, and you've yeah. worked on tons of shows, and yeah. um, and and all these, you know, like the uh, Penn and Teller, and uh, and Howie working with Howie on Deal with It, and there's just been so many. Uh, it's not as if I don't, I'd hate to leave the, the end of this episode as if you never had a, 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 there's been a lot of great stuff. No, I've been very, I've been very fortunate. Well, one, one reason is that I made the transition into reality, uh, reality TV. Yes. I mean, and reality, well, and reality of life. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it's like my tattoo that I got, I didn't know what it, what it meant when I got it, but I found out later it said it means reality. Oh wow! I didn't even know you had a tattoo. No, it, it was it was on my honeymoon, and I thought it meant something true or something from my. Uh, song. Anyway, 
And then a Chinese person said it means flowering pear fruit. And then I found out later it means reality. Larry David, you got to direct. Did you call him and say, I want to direct one of your oh, uh, curbs? Yes, I did. And he said, I don't think I have enough power to get you in there. And we, which was, he was, he was joking because I, and, and thank God I wasn't in the, I don't know. How hard was it to years, lift the phone? A couple of years later though, he called me and says, I want you to direct an episode of curbs. Was he joking when he said that the first time for real? No, I think, being well, playful. no, he was joking, but it was just his funny way of saying no. Okay, and then but out then of nowhere couple, he calls you? But then a couple of years later, he saw me on the Chabad telethon. He saw me. He saw a documentary I did on a mutual friend of ours who died. Mm. And What's that documentary? It was called 50 Things to Do Before I Die. It was about a really close friend. Is it online if people want to see it? No, it's not online. Okay. Anyone? It was a personal project, but it it was a... So he saw this documentary. About it. So I sent yeah. him a... He, he helped me with it, actually. Wow. He helped me with it. He appeared in it. And because he was a was a writer from Fridays, a mutual friend okay. who died, and Larry, I guess that put me back in touch with him. But a couple of years later, I was doing a reality show in Silver Spring, Maryland. I get a email that says Larry Dave would like you to wonder if you'd like to direct an episode of Curb, and Larry calls me, and I just screamed. I screamed. Someone in the other office says, "What happened? It sounds like you won the lottery." I said, "I did," and I cried. I had to go into like <laughs> the bathroom, the in, in a bathroom stall and started crying. I called my wife and said, guess what? And it was very exciting. I mean, that's a great story. It was, it was one of the few uh, times that I stepped away from doing just reality and got to do some comedy again. Listen, I wish we could keep talking, but I want to keep, I want to end it on that high note because I really think it shows it's a great way to end this episode because it really shows what life is like for you today. You know, I think, yeah. and, and you know, I'm a lucky guy. You're a lucky guy, but you're also, you know, you're very special. And, and part of your journey might have been also, it's, it's, it helps me and other people. It helps everyone in their own way. And, you know, thank God you're alive. And, uh, and, uh, and thank you so much for being here. My and, and I mean honor. being here in life. Yeah, me too. And here in the studio. I'm grateful to be here. But I know too. it's not an easy journey. I mean, I can't imagine actually. It's hard. Everyone, it's hard. You know, I look at people. It's hard. I admire people yeah. like you well you do the yeah. show you it's not easy yeah. i tried oh, life tried is hard them. man it is it's like they say there are some perks to it it's the first step in the uh in the in the book um uh there's a book uh, the um yeah the road just, less travel yeah the first is life is difficult yeah it's the first sentence and once you understand that it's easier it helps yeah thank you all i appreciate you all joining us here and thank you again tom uh where can they find you if they want to say hello to you, are you on Facebook? Well, you, uh, if you want to say hello to me, well, you can or? go to, you can say, I think, TomKramerFilms.com, Tom at TomKramerFilms.com. Okay, very it's good. A, yeah. Say hi to Tom. He's a great guy. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. And thank you all again for listening to Vic Cohen's It's a Fair Question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question.